In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. This third Sunday of Advent goes by a number of different names. Uh, Gaudete Sunday, Rose Sunday, and even Stir Up Sunday. That's because of that phrase, Stir Up Your Power, O God, The prayer occurs a few weeks earlier in England, and it's also a reminder to stir up your Christmas pudding and get it ready in time. This Sunday comes about midway through the season of Advent, and so it works as a a kind of pause, a little bit like the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent, Um, a little bit of break, as if to say, even though Advent can be a time of thoughtfulness and quiet, of, of prayer and purple, Christmas joy is coming. The season of Advent used to be so penitential that altar flowers could only be used on this Sunday, this third Sunday of Advent. Combining that with an undercurrent of the story and the song of the Virgin Mary, especially in older lectionaries, this day came to be known as Rose Sunday and was associated with a focus on the Virgin Mary. Roses could be used in church and Special rose vestments would make their appearance on this day. A pink candle would appear in the Advent wreath. And here there are even a few berries that made their way into the wreath today. And of course, we substitute the psalm for the singing of Magnificat. Um, Extra special today because yesterday we had a quiet day on Hildegard of Bingen. And today the arrangement was by Hildegard. Uh, an early medieval woman who wrote music for women, rarity upon rarities. And so with all of that working together, all sort of fill the day with Mary's joy and with Mary's hope in God, Isaiah begins this hope and this joy earlier, as we heard in our first reading, It's a song of sorts that Isaiah puts forth. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. That song continues to grow and build until God's song of joy and creation finds its fuller expression in the song of God's beloved, Mary. The Virgin Mary was probably in her mid-teens, just a young Jewish girl from the outskirts of Galilee, and yet she was filled with the stories and the songs of other faithful people who also had prayed to God in tough times. And so she was able to use their words to articulate her own joy and hope and, and fear and longing. And so she filled the air with her song of love and absolute faith. The late uh, Peter Gomes, who was for years the preacher and teacher and chaplain at Harvard, used to say that many Protestants have trouble with the Virgin Mary because so many people just assume she was a Roman Catholic. He told a story imagining a good friend of his, a certain Protestant dean of an Episcopal cathedral, who had very little patience or time with any talk of the Virgin Mary. 
And so Dr. Gomes imagined that one day this very Protestant dean would die and he probably would go to heaven. And there in heaven, Jesus would come down from the right hand of God and, and take the hand of the dean and say, Why, Mr. Dean, welcome to heaven. I know you've met my father, but I don't believe you know my mother. <laughs> Over the years, I think I've slowly gotten to know Jesus' mother a little bit. In fact, I should probably admit that in some ways, I think it's the Virgin Mary's fault that I'm an Episcopal priest. If not her doing entirely, at least it seems like I've had her steady push and influence In college, I would often attend an Episcopal church, and I loved the music. I loved the music I would hear, and I would sing there. And so I would sing and hear about the seven joys of Mary, and I'd look them up and learn about them. And then I would notice these images of Mary as the new Eve, just as Jesus is the new Adam. And I was entranced. And so later when I learned that the Orthodox refer to Mary as the mother of God, since in fact she gives birth to Jesus, the Son of God, it made perfect sense to me. And then the big shift happened in seminary. It turned out that in my introductory theology course, we used a little book called Principles of Christian Theology by a man named John Macquarie. Even though he has a good Scottish name and was, in fact, at one point a Church of Scotland minister, Macquarie took a different path, and it would be a path I would follow later from the Presbyterian Church into the Episcopal Church. You see, somewhere in this textbook, there was a footnote. And the footnote referred the reader to a document that was published by a group called the Ecumenical Society of the Blessed Virgin Mary. (laughs) Now, this was before Googling. And so I went to the library and looked up this society. I found that not only were there papers and pamphlets by the society, but it was truly ecumenical. It was made up of Lutherans and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics and Orthodox and Episcopalians and even some Baptists. And the group's goal was to try to recover what it believed was the rightful role of Mary in Christian theology. A Lutheran theologian named Karl Bratton pointed out that the vehement attack of the Reformation against the exaggerated cult of Mary in late medieval Christianity diminished Mary's place in our story of salvation. It diminished Mary's place in our own personal piety and in public worship. And yet Martin Luther, the arch-Protestant, had a very high view of Mary. Luther wrote, Mary does not desire to be an idol. She desires nothing. God desires all. We ought to call upon her that for her sake God may grant and do what we request. Thus also all other saints are to be invoked so that the work may be every way God's work alone. The more I learned about Mary and the early church and sacramental theology, the more I sort of felt cheated that I'd never heard about Mary growing up. 
Of course, some Roman Catholics might have layers of cultural and folk tradition that they have to sort through. I had the opposite problem. I had only inherited a sort of thickness of ignorance and prejudice. I'd heard that certain people worshipped the Virgin Mary, which is not quite true. It is true that some of what has come to be believed about Mary springs from the hearts of faithful people. Early Christians began wondering about Jesus and where the scriptures didn't tell everything, they filled in the rest. If, as the theologians insisted, Jesus was born of a woman, then people began to wonder, well, what kind of woman must she have been like? The New Testament scriptures only offer the barest of details, but other early scriptures and writings that circulated in the early church painted a fuller picture and talked about Mary and her special place in God's plan for salvation. Early theologians reasoned that Mary, or someone like her, needed to be there for God's plan to be worked out. And that plan didn't stop with Mary. It continues and includes us and includes our eternal life, not only with God, but with Mary and all the saints. Today we use the Magnificat in place of the psalm. And Magnificat is, of course, just the Latin first word of that phrase, my soul magnifies. The angel Gabriel reveals to Mary that she's going to give birth to a very special baby. And while Mary's first instinct might be to run far, far in the opposite direction, instead she stands still. She remembers the words that Hannah sang so long ago, way back in 1 Samuel. And Mary quotes what she remembers of Hannah's song, but she adds her own spin In the Magnificat, we see Mary as faithful to God's calling, even when it seems scary, even when it brings danger, even when it might turn everything in one's world upside down. Beverly Gaventa is a Presbyterian theologian who teaches at a Baptist institution at Baylor. And yet she writes about the Virgin Mary, and she suggests at least three ways in which Mary can be a model for us. A model that can help us grow in our relationship with Jesus. First, there is what Gaventa calls the vulnerability of Mary. In other words, Mary allows God to direct her life. She's obedient in the truest sense of that term. Her, um, her obedience in no way takes away her strength or her agency or her feistiness or her strong-mindedness. This is the same Mary, after all, who's at the wedding at Cana, directing things. And when they run out of wine, it's Mary who tells Jesus, do something about it. Mary is not obedient to the point of silence. She's obedient in the true sense of that word, in that she hears ab audire. She listens to God's word. Mary's obedience in no way diminishes her personality, and yet she's wholly dedicated to God and to God's purposes. Second, Mary is able to reflect on the events in her life. That's a real gift. That's no small thing to be able to reflect. When I think about my own sometime ability and usual inability to reflect 
I think about my habit of journaling. There are times when I can journal and lots of times when I can't. When I do look back at those journals, much of my musing, my writing is is embarrassing and immature. And yet there are parts when I'm really surprised because I can now see what God was doing then. The reflection really helps It reminds me that in order to notice, I need to slow down sometimes. I need to pray. I need to open my eyes and look. I need to listen. Mary notices what's going on around her. And slowly and also surely, she realizes what God is unfolding in her life and in the world. Finally, Mary can teach us what it means to be a witness of Jesus. We've all probably seen in icons and other art the classic posture of the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus sort of on her knee. Often Mary is very subtly pointing to Jesus. The gesture speaks more than a thousand words as as Mary says again, listen to him, watch him, do what he says. He is the way. Not too long ago, someone gave me a gift. And when I opened the gift, I burst out laughing. It's a small blue plastic nightlight of the Blessed Virgin Mary. (laughs) I like it because it's funny. I like it because it's small. It's silly in a lot of ways. But I also like it because it symbolizes a lot about the Virgin Mary's role in our world. On one hand, yes, absolutely, she has been diminished. She's been often turned into the stuff of folk magic and kitsch. Her image appears on toast and on roadside underpasses. (laughs) Just as surely as she seems to appear in holy hearts at places like Tepeyac and Medjugorje and Lourdes. And yet there is light. That night light of Mary is a good image for me and for anyone who has known something, even just a glimmer of her presence, her steadiness, her reliability, and her willingness to be a soft light showing the way, redirecting, pointing again and again and again to Jesus, her son. She shows the way to Jesus. She shows the way to eternal life in God. As we continue through this season of Advent, as we continue through life, may we hear Mary's song of joy, even in the midst of confusion, even when the way ahead is anything but clear, even when there's death, even when we only see darkness. May God's Spirit help us to know the Blessed Virgin Mary and especially to know her qualities so that we too might be brought to heaven, raised high with the saints and angels, and behold the risen Christ face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.